on some level, Jay Monahan showed the ultimate leadership. He jumped on the grenade and they'd come to the end of the road. They could no longer try and compete with the Saudis. The only thing to do was to forge a compromise. And by doing so, he secured the long-term health of the PG Tour, potentially. He's going to bring fabulous new riches to all his players. And the Tour didn't have to give up anything. All the, all, the only cost was Jay Monahan's reputation and maybe his soul. I got thoughts in my head, can't get them out. Trying not to think what I'm thinking about. I got thoughts in my head, can't get them out. Trying not to think what I'm thinking about. Hello, welcome back from the Fire Drill Podcast. This is Alan Shipnuck. I am joined by frequent wingman Michael Bamberger. Uh, that song you just heard was by Griffin House, very talented musician. He's gonna f- he's gonna factor in, in an upcoming Fire Drill podcast. But shout out to Griffin for supplying our theme music and uh, Dormy Workshop and Link Soul for all of their sponsorship and support and uh, helping us keep the lights on here at the fire pit. But this is kind of a, a special fire drill. We're talking about my new book, um, Live and Let Die. Here, I'll show it on the screen for those who are watching on YouTube. I don't know why you'd be doing that. It's a little terrifying that people actually watch this, Michael. But um, anyway, thanks for being here. I showered in anticipation of that viewer. I shaved and you can see my hair still wet. I was coming in hot. Uh, (laughs) But uh, we've been having these conversations about our respective books going back a decade now. I think it began with Men in Green, and there's no one I'd rather talk about than um, about this stuff uh, than with you. A a man of letters, a lover of the written word, a discerning reader. Um, So here we are. Uh, I'm turning this over to you now. Uh, We're we're changing hosts. uh, Okay, well, (laughs) that's uh, that's a delight and and an honor. And you know, just before we. I'm going to have a little preamble here, but I don't want people to be nervous. When this is over, Shipnuck will have done 94% of the talking. <laughs> but, I'm going to, I'm going to, but I'm going to set the, I'm going to do a little mood lighting here. And let me say this at the onset, so I might beat other people to it. Alan and I have been close friends and colleagues going back to the mid-90s. Our checks have been signed by the same, quote, people and corporations going back to the mid-90s, going back to Sports Illustrated and Golf Magazine and Fire Pit Collective. We have the same editor, Joe Fuferri Adler, at um, Simon Schuster, a division of Simon Schuster now called Avid Reader Press. Uh, our inter- We've written a book together. Our interests are very much aligned. Uh, but we're going to have a very truthful conversation about this incredibly interesting and well done book. Uh, I read the book as Alan was writing it. I've just read the new uh, uh, last chapter of it. For anybody who care, you know, Ben Bradley famously said, Ben Bradley was the longtime editor of the Washington Post. Maybe others have said it. I'm sure others have said it. You know, that newspaper work is the first draft of history. You know, I think that's a beautiful phrase. But what Alan has done here is hot on uh, the, the wake of the, uh, of the actual events is actually given context and history to an incredible upheaval, upheaval in professional golf. But the real value of it for me as a reader, and I think for many, many people who who, who read and devour this book, is that it's not really just about golf. It's about the modern condition, about more is more greed. It's never enough. There, uh, 
uh, global interests in a narrow thing and how you buy status th uh, through the use of money. So it's an absolutely incredible and interesting book. As someone who's been a lifelong reporter, I can imagine, I would say, I know how difficult this book was to uh, to report and write, Alan. So the first thing I want to say is congratulations on an extremely well-done book. Nobody will read this book and say it's boring. Uh, Alan and I had a colleague uh, and a friend, uh, Rick Riley, years ago, and, uh, and, and Alan wrote a book called um, Bud Sweat and Tease. And, and Riley blurb for it, and Riley's blurb for it was, somebody forgot to tell Alan Shipnick that golf books are supposed to be boring, or <laughs> words to that effect. This book is so interesting and so captivating uh, because it has so much at play, so many different types of personalities. So with that long preamble, we're going to get into the book. But, Alan, I want to start where the book stops, and that is because I know people will be interested to know on your extremely informed opinion about this question. I think we all have a sense of what the various tours will look like in 2024. Give us your best guess for what the world golf will look like in 2025. Well, first of all, thank you for all those kind words. And I, we could make this just a, this podcast, a monologue. That's fine. If you want to keep going, Mike, I don't mind at all. I enjoyed that deeply, but, um, yeah, I think it's obvious that 2024 20, is going to look very much like uh, 23 and, 20, and 22 for that matter. Um, Live will play a schedule. The, the European Tour will have its schedule and so will the PGA Tour with some tweaks along the way for each of them. But 25 is the big question. As as I've continued to report this book, even after it was mostly done, you know, I was at the um, U.S. Women's Amateur at Bel Air walking with some some golf power brokers and they were talking – some of them were Seminole members. Some of them were buddies with Jimmy Dunn. You know, they they were they were close to the nexus of power, and they were talking about all of the private equity money that, uh, from American corporations that are now circling this deal. And I, I think it's it, and it sounds like it's it's close to done. Where the the Saudis' role will be somewhat diluted, and they will bring in institutional investor money for the United States, and that becomes a much easier sell to Congress even to the tour members and say, listen, the, the Saudis are an investor, but so is, um, you know, rain capital. So is BlackRock. So are some of these other big firms that have been trying to get into golf, maybe endeavor, you know, all those, all those firms have been trying to get into professional golf going back years now. And so I think that becomes more palatable from the standpoint of it's not controlled by the Saudis. And even though the tour folks have hung their hat on this for a long time, that, uh, we have a majority seat on the board of directors. We're in charge. No one's really believed that because the money is in charge and Yasir had all the money. Um, and so if you, if you bring in the, the uh, one or two or maybe even three, uh, you know, American based private equity firms, then, then you can say, well, the PJ tour is in charge and we have a variety of investors. One of them being the public investment fund in the Saudis. Um, I think that still works for, for Yasir. They have the proverbial seat at the table. They have a way forward for live um, from a legitimacy standpoint. They've been embraced by the, um, the golf establishment and um, the corporate. They've gotten the okay from corporate America and it's kind of a win, win, win. So I think that's, what's going to happen. I think there will be a global schedule that has, uh, you know, say call it 20 events that, uh, combination of the best European tour events, the best PGA tour events and a handful of live events and players will flow back and forth. And I think that'll make everyone happy. And then uh, they'll still, the European tour will still have its 
normal schedule. There'll still be a variety of live events that are not part of this umbrella organization. And of course, there'll still be another 40 plus PGA Tour events that operate kind of business as usual. So it, this, it's been a, it's been a challenging period for golf fans. There's been a lot of acrimony. There's been a lot of name calling and uncertainty, but we may land on the best case scenario, which is a true global schedule where all the best players show up and play every tournament. And, um, it will have been, it will have taken some strife to get there, but I think that's the direction this is all heading. Well, Alan, what does that mean in terms of a live schedule? Because the, the live model, as you know better than anybody, as well as anybody, is team play in addition to uh, in individual play. Um, how would that work in the context of people coming and going? Would it still be the limited field three-round thing with teams that they have now? So let's say there's there's 14 of live events now. Maybe 10 of them are just how they've always been. And maybe four of them get subsumed into this larger schedule and they would probably be tweaked. So now you have, you have a team element where maybe there's the, the six best live teams. They, you know, they, they, they sort of have earned the right to play in these events. And then you have, let's say six teams of top tour players with some sort of criteria. And then you have three teams of European tour and they, they play off in this team event with an individual component and, um, you know, I think it's it's very doable. It becomes kind of a prize you have to qualify for. The the, the live teams that miss out on these events, then they're just kind of SOL, but they, they can make it up to another ways. They can give them exemptions into Asian tour events if the guys want to want to fill out their schedule. So um, that's why this framework agreement is so complex. Is trying to is trying to make something that works for all the different constituencies, and that's why there's been no movement publicly because uh, there's so much to sort out, but. All these things are solvable with with money, and now there's the the new co, as they call it, has access to a lot of money, not just from the Saudis, but also from this notion of bringing in other investors. So, I, I think they can I think they can figure this out. There's a lot of smart people who are working on it, and there's a lot of political will to get it done. Um, but it's probably going to go down to the wire. I mean, they have till December 31st, and they might they might be they might be negotiating this over Christmas holiday. But I think it'll get done. So a, a golfer who's, you know, still, you would think in theory in his prime, like a Patrick Reed, um, who's been banned from the PHA Tour, would he now come 2025? Would he be able to come and go? Well, Patrick Reed's the the, the least example, you know, Dustin Johnson, Brooks Kepka. Uh, yeah, anybody. so they would they would have access to this this series of say twenty elite events, of which ten of them are tour traditional PGA Tour events. So they could play the LA Open, they could play Bay Hill, they could play Memorial. Um, you have to have it both ways. If, if you're going to try and bring the game back together, then you, you got to bring these live guys back into the fold. It's the only thing that that makes sense. And it's it certainly, if you are if you are a Mastercard or a um, American Express or whomever a car company, and and you're you're being asked to put in twenty million dollars for a PG Tour event, uh, you want Dustin, you want you want Bryson who's playing incredible golf. I mean, he just won his second live event in three starts and well, it's hard, it's, it's hard for all of us to know the meaning of a, of a live victory, but the guy's shooting incredible scores, including a 58. So, um, you know, obviously Brooks Kepka has returned to the front ranks of the game. You, you have the anti-heroes like the Phil's, the Patrick Reed's, the Sergio Garcia's who people may not love, but they inspire emotion and passion and, I mean, there's a reason that the Masters ratings were the highest they've been in five years this year. It was the live guys. I mean, it was Phil tearing up the leaderboard. 
you know, John Rahm winning by four strokes was boring, but the, the energy that lit, that, that Phil put into it, that Brooks put into it, you know, even in, even Reed, who finished fourth, like, um, these guys inspire emotion. And so you, you have to have them back in, in, in the big tournaments to really make it all for it all make sense. And let, let, let's get to the book for a minute. Uh, let's get to the title. Um, uh, I remember very well when the uh, James Bond movie came out with uh, Live and Let Die as its theme song. Did you ever find yourself playing it at a loud volume with those terrifying deep bass notes? <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Just a great, great rocker that shows you that Paul McCartney's <laughs> genius extended way beyond uh, the Beatles, even though it definitely, yeah. definitely, definitely peaked in the Beatles. Did you ever find yourself listening to that song? <laughs> no, I, I think we're straying into you, into your life more than mine, Michael. But yeah, I, I definitely have queued it up. Um, and it, yeah, it's it's just a fun title. It's a Beatles song. It's a Bond movie. Or not a Beatles song. It's a McCartney song. It's a Bond movie. It's uh, And it just kind of worked because of the the... There is this sense that the, the tours were fighting for their survival. The game's survival was at stake. You know, there's, it wasn't quite zero sum, but there was times throughout this controversy, it felt like it. And, you, you know, the reputation of Jay Monahan, the, um, there was, a, there's just been a lot at stake. I mean, that, that's, this story has consumed so many people. And the cast of characters is, is phenomenal. And, of course, you have Rory and you have Tiger and you have Phil and you have Brooks and you have Bryson and you have DJ and Patrick Reed. But you also have Mohammed bin Salman. You have you have His Excellency Yasir Al-Rumayan. You have Jay Monahan. You have you know Keith Pelley. You've got Jimmy Dunn, Donald Trump. Uh, there's just a lot of box office here. And uh, <laughs> some people were elevated. Some people were diminished. You know, fortunes were won and, and lost. Uh, it's it's it was just high stakes for what was otherwise just a kind of potentially a boring golf story, you know, um, in a little boutique sport. So, uh, yeah, the, I mean, the, the title might be a little hyperbolic, but it just seemed to, to fit the, the energy of the story. Well, where do you think we're actually going? Do you think we are in? We, do you think we are heading towards live and let die? Or do you think we're heading towards live and let thrive or some other word? Yeah. I think, I think that Liv is going to endure. I think it's too important to um, Yasir and the public investment fund. They've put a lot of money and a lot of time into it, and they they want to return on their investment. I mean, there's a quote from a guy who who worked a lot with with the Saudis on launching Liv, and he said, you know, it's in the book. He's anonymous because of of his NDAs and other reasons, but. He said, there's the narrative that these guys have an endless amount of money and they, they're happy to throw it away. He's like, it couldn't be further from the truth. Like they are laser focused and there's always a plan and they will not stop until they've executed a plan. And so they've already spent, say, $3 billion on, on Live Golf. They want to get that money back. Um, you know, that Yasir has a very demanding boss. <laughs> that's that's MBS. And he has a mandate to grow uh, the, the PIFs into a, into a trillion dollar fund by 2025, you don't lo- do that by losing money. And that's not a guy you want to have mad at you. You know, if we all want to please our boss, uh, when, when you, your boss is a scary motherfucker, like MBS, you really want to, you want to hit your marks. So they're, they're, they're trying to get their money back and they're trying to make money. Um, and there's, there's other things you're willing to pay for the reputational boost of, of being aligned with corporate America and the PGA tour. Um, the notion that you see could become a member of the RNA and Augusta national while fanciful it, you know, that was, it's a window into their soul. I mean, it, 
let's just say that that worked out. He would have access to the American ruling class in a way that no Saudi king or crown prince or ambassador ever has had. And so um, they're certainly willing to to pay a premium for for that kind of access. But they're, they're bottom line, very cold-blooded businessmen, and they want to get their money back. So uh, shuttering live now ends that possibility. If they can keep it going and turn it into something, then then um, then they, that's a path forward. Traditionally, a book has a hero that you can root for. Your first book, which and you know how much I loved it, um, uh, Bud Sweat and Tease, has an unlikely hero, a caddy named Steve Duplantis. Uh, who caddies for Rich Beam, and you're rooting for this guy, and he's hanging on by a thread. This book is ex- very, very compulsively readable. But let me, I'll turn it into a question. In your mind, is there a hero uh, in the telling of, 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 of this story? It's, it's what I think makes it so compelling is that every protagonist. Uh, has complicated motives and and complicated behavior. Like Jay Monahan is fighting for the PGA Tour. He's a true believer. He has no other agenda than trying to do what's best for the tour and his players and his organization. Um, and you, but he's made some, he made some fatal missteps out of pride or out of um, out out of bad advice or out of having this old hockey J mentality. That's his nickname at the tour headquarters when, when he went, you know, it's the dark side of his personality. Cause he was an old defenseman in college hockey team. So, um, you know, he could have been the hero, but he kind of, he, he, he kind of fell on his sword. Um, you know, Rory thought he was fighting the good fight and in a lot of ways he was, but you know, there's, there's an interesting bit in here from, you know, the live guys roll their eyes so hard at Rory as this, as this white knight of this tale, because, he has tremendous financial interests through the PGA Tour. All the deals they've steered through to him, this new TGL golf league that the tour has supported and um, has a financial interest in. So, uh, and in the end, you know, he he got out foxed by the money guys, and he he might be the tragic hero. Uh, Tiger, you know, he's 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 been this this shadowy influence throughout. Like on one hand, yes it's very selfless for him to get involved and to the Delaware 23 meeting that he led that really turned the tide for the PGA tour. And now taking this seat on the board of directors, you could kind of say tiger's the hero, but he hasn't want to be out front. He's only really made one, you know, very strong statement at the British open, but he's, it doesn't feel like his fight. You know, he's not really a modern player anymore. He's not going to play in these events for the most part. So, um, and he's trying to protect his legacy. You know, he has his own selfish reasons for wanting the PGA Tour to endure. And so, um, there's it's hard to it's hard to find an unblemished hero. There's a lot of people who were doing the right thing and they were trying their hardest, but you, their motives are a little complex. And that's why I think it's so. And like e- even the Saudis who've been cast as the bad guys, in a lot of ways, they're true believers. Like they think that they're doing what's best for their economy, for their country. Um, you know, they, they are fighting the good fight in their minds. Now people are going to disagree with that, but, uh, on some level, their motives are very pure. They just, they just want to advance their own interests and they, they care deeply about their country and they're, um, they're doing everything they, they, they can to advance, um, the wishes of their, of their boss and, and their organization. So, um, it, you can, you can impugn their motives, but I think, you know, for Yasir, I think it's pure in that he loves golf. 
And he could, there's a lot of ways he could invest in his money that would be a lot less of a headache, right? Um, he could just keep buying stock of Fortune 500 companies and it's probably an easier way to make money, but he loves golf. He, he, he's an, he wants to be an ambassador for the game. He wants to spread the gospel of golf, you know? So it's, it's, it's just one of the most fascinating parts of this whole tale is that everyone who gets sucked into it, um, it's, they, they get engulfed in the controversy and they become, um, they're just multifaceted and what, what they're trying to accomplish and who they really are at their core. You get glimpses of it. You never know for sure. And, and even, even when you do get, get that insight, uh, you, you can always debate how, how pure their motives are or not. So it, they're, it's not a simplistic story where there's a good guy and a bad guy. Uh, and right. that's, I think, why it's more interesting. Right. That's very well said. And and I think I, this would be a good time for, for me to point out uh, um, the book is incredibly even-handed. I know, I think I picked up on the on the idea that people think that you're, quote, pro-live. And uh, I read the book, and I don't think there's any way someone can say you're pro-live, you're anti-live, you're pro-PHA tour, you're anti-PHA tour. I think you're really trying to tell us a very complicated story with a lot of different emotions. And I think it's very powerful to hear you say that, that, that what the, what these PIF backers, what these Saudi billionaires want, uh, that they believe in golf. They, uh, they believe in the things that golf can bring. Um, they're motivated by making, by making money, but they have other motivations, uh, as well. And, um, you know, we don't have a stranglehold on that. We, we Americans or, or Europeans or Asians or, or anybody else. Uh, so I think what you just said, it's kind of important to bear in mind, but many people's starting point is this looks like a play rooted in greed. You just wrote a book about Phil Mickelson. It's amazing that that book only came out, what, about a year, and not a year and a few months ago now. And here you here we already are talking about your next 90,000 word, 100,000 word book. That's, a, you know, for those who don't know what how much work it is to get a book out and correct and edited and well-written. It's, uh, it's staggering. Um, but let's talk a bit, a little bit about your experience writing Phil, how people responded to your take on Phil and how you use that in this book. Yeah. I mean, I think for a lot of casual fans and even some reporters and people in the game, the, the Phil book touched off the live era in some ways because everything was happening in the shadows and Phil was at the center of all of it. He wasn't the only one, you know, Dustin and Bryson and others and, and Kepka, they, they'd been talking to the Saudis for over a year, but when, when the excerpt dropped from the Phil book in which Phil just gave a very blunt lay of the land of what was really happening. That's when people really woke up to this because live had not been announced yet. It was not a sure thing and it had, nothing had been public. And so, that that was kind of the beginning of the story, I think, for a lot of people. And honestly, for me too, like it wasn't until I had that phone call with Phil that I realized how how serious this was. I, because the Premier Golf League, and I, I trace its entire history early in in this new book, and it's fascinating that that's that's what created all this was this this idea from this one London lawyer on how golf professional golf could be a little better and a little more interesting. That's what led us to this moment. But the Premier Golf League had been knocking around for four years, and they'd never been able to get traction, and so. I think a lot of people thought they were confused because the Saudis at one point were just investors in the premier golf league. And so then live golf 
was was being whispered about. But a lot of people in the game still thought that was just the Premier Golf League. They didn't realize the Saudis had broken away and were creating their own standalone thing. I mean, I trace all of this in, in, in Live and Let Die, but um, – so it was easy to dismiss, oh, well, the Saudis have been involved for years. There's been no traction. There's been no announcements. It's all just going to go away. You know, the Phil book kind of touched off the live era on some level as this lives are going to change and the, the story of professional golf is going to change. And But as I was reporting the live and let die, like I learned a lot more about Phil's role in all of this. Um, and it's unbelievable. He was the biggest booster for the Premier Golf League. And there's a hilarious quote from Keith Pelly, the CEO of the European Tour, where um, Pelly's trying to decide, should he do the strategic alliance with the PGA Tour or should he join with the, the Premier Golf League and create this new super tour? And Phil calls him up out of the blue and is advocating for the, the PGL. And he's like, Keith, you're a visionary. You, this is your chance. You can do it. You know, you can change golf forever. I mean, it's really self-referential. Phil's describing himself. And, you know, Pelly says it's a, it was his full pitch. Ultimately, the European tour went with the strategic alliance with the PGA tour. That's what forced the Saudis to go at it alone. So then Phil threw in with the Saudis. But at the same time, he took all the sort of intellectual property from what they were cooking up. And he went to some of these New York private equity firms and tried to create his own breakaway tour. So Phil was in league with the Premier Golf League, with the Saudis, and then with his own third rail breakaway tour while he was negotiating with the PGA Tour on how to make things better if he stayed. So he was basically working four sides of the street simultaneously. Hmm. And it's just classic Phil. And on some level, he succeeded. I mean, without him... Um, as a, as the chief recruiter and booster, you know, live golf pride never launches, but of course he set himself on fire in the process. Um, and now if this framework agreement is consummated and he's brought back into the fold, you know, he can return as the conquering hero who, who doubled the salary of every professional golfer and made the game global. And it came at a reputational cost, but he'll, he'll claim vindication, whether that, again, it's complex. Um, does, is that, can, is that valid? Is, is Phil going to uh, – does he deserve the accolades? I mean, that's not something we could debate. But there's no doubt he was a monumental agent of change. And he was he was the center of the maze for all of this. And so his his role is fleshed out a bit more in Live and Let Die. It's, you know, it comes in at the end of the Phil biography. But, and I don't want to go too deep on Phil in this next book because I don't want to feel like a sequel. But he's just incredibly important to all of this. And – I mean, there's so many funny things like the Premier Golf League. They their first their first offers go out, and Tigers offered 200 million dollars, and Phil's offered 50. And the um, one of the Premier Golf League guys tells me absolutely no one in golf had any problem with how much Tiger Woods was being offered, except Phil. And so then. The, the second round of offers, Phil gets a, a $50 million consulting fee and they knock down what Tiger's offered. Like it, it's just, he's just, he's always got his thumb on the scales. He's always got his finger in the soup, whatever metaphor you want. Like he's just always in the middle of everything. And so I didn't go too heavy on Phil, but his cameos are laugh out loud in this book because he's just such a muckraker and a rascal and a shit stirrer and uh, he can't help himself. To, uh, tell the folks who might not know who Deep Throat was in real life and tell us if you had any Deep Throats of your own because <laughs> I know how yeah. difficult a book like this is to report. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, Deep Throat was a, uh, a 1980s porn, but that was inspired by a character in All the President's Men who was 
the source for Woodward and Bernstein on breaking the whole Watergate story. And he, um, his identity was not known until he, he died just some, somewhat recently, but he was, he was the guy who knew everything, but, but wanted to stay in the shadows. And so he was not identified by name in their stories and they just called him deep throat. And, um, and so, yeah, I had a, a variety of people like that in this book <laughs> because one of the fun and challenging parts of this is everyone wanted to spin me, right? The legacies were at stake here. And as you mentioned in your preamble, this was going to be the first draft of history. Um, and there's been a lot of, a lot of people have been writing, done a lot of good journalism about live golf, but this was going to collect the whole story in one place. And books have a way of enduring in, in a way that maybe a, a web column does not. And so people want to talk to me. They wanted, they wanted to try and impress upon me their point of view, but a lot of them wouldn't do it publicly. So I tried to keep anonymous sources to a minimum, but they were, they were inevitable in certain ways. And the funny thing was the cloak and dagger element where because the department of justice was snooping around, they had access to the phones of a lot of golf's power brokers. So hmm. a, a very senior person in the golf world comes up to me at a tournament says, stop call, you know, stop texting me because the department of justice is reading my text. He's like, just call me and we can talk but don't text me. Another guy is like, stop emailing me because the Securities and Exchange Commission is reading my emails. And um, so I have like burner phone numbers for a lot of powerful people in the game. I have a couple of wife cell numbers. I have some landlines. I have some some faux emails that, you know, they have their official um, work email, but then they have their own private one. And, and so, yeah, there was documents that people wanted me to know about, but they couldn't actually give them to me. So they just read them to me over the phone. So there, you know, there wouldn't be a paper trail, but I would, I would know what was contained in them. So it was a extremely fun reporting challenge to get the goods. And um, I mean, you, you know, this Michael, like that's, that's one of the best parts of the job is when you're chasing something and you have a fragment of it and someone's told you part of it and someone else has told you a piece of it, but then you get to the the person who was in the room and they'll actually give it up. And there was a lot of aha moments like that where I'd been chasing things for a long time and I finally wore somebody down or they had a change of heart. And there was a lot of people who wouldn't talk to me for a long time. I kept going back to them and saying, well, so-and-so told me you were there and someone else told me that you said this um, and finally like, okay, fine, you know too much. I got to talk to you now. And then they would, but initially they blew me off because they, they didn't want to get sucked into it. But one, once I really had the goods, then they felt compelled to weigh in with their version of it. So, right. um, and, and that's, I mean, I, I, there's a quote in this book. It's something I've always thought about. It's this, this, this Hollywood producer, um, you know, Robert Evans, there's, there's three sides to every story yours, mine, and the truth. And I was always hyper aware of that in reporting this, that um, even these people who were primary sources, who who were part of the negotiations or who, who were witnesses to the, the key events, they had their own motivations that I had to weigh out. And so it was constantly fact-checking and constantly getting second and third sources to confirm. And sometimes, I mean, like, this is just a small thing, but you know, Jack Nicholas got sucked into this whole story. You know, basically Jack was suing himself. It was, it was the Nicholas companies suing the man himself. And it was about Saudi money. And so I, I, I talked to some people 
associated with Liv who were at this meeting and with Jack and they told one version of the story. And then I talked to Jack's people and their version was completely different. I wasn't in the room. I don't know what was said. I have to take the word of these people who were in the room and there was no way to really. So then I just quote both of them and I kind of leave it up to the reader to assess the the person's right. motives and just kind of lay it out. So there were a few times like that where it was not possible to determine um, what really happened. And I have these competing views and I just present that. And it, to me, it's almost kind of funny. You have like how, how much spin is involved because there was only one conversation in one room. And for people to be telling such different stories, then you, you know, they're not really honest brokers. And, um, um, it, I'm, I'm, most of the time I was the judge and the jury on that. And, but in some instances, I just leave it up to the reader to try and make up their own mind. Right. Right. Um, one of the char- one of the quote characters, one of the people in the book that goes through the most character development over the course of the, uh, the book would be, uh, Jay Monahan, who comes up as Fincham's, uh, uh, deputy is a true, true believer. Um, and you know, anybody who follows golf, you know, know knows what he said to the pub, uh, you know, with TV cameras rolling, you know, ask yourself, you know, you ever have to be embarrassed to be a member of the PJ Tour. And then does this incredible about face at, inc- at immense personal toll to him. Then he takes a leave uh, from his job to deal with really, we have to guess the mental strain of it all uh, the, and, and the physical ramifications of that. What's your sense of what it's like to what it has been like to be Jay Monahan for these past couple of years? It's interesting because he's being pilloried by his own players, by senators and congressmen, um, certainly by the live guys. On some on some level, Jay Monahan showed the ultimate leadership. He jumped on the grenade, and he when he realized, okay, we can't come. They'd come to the end of the road. They could no longer try and compete with the Saudis. The only thing to do was to forge a compromise. And by doing so, he secured the long-term health of the PG Tour, potentially. He's going to bring fabulous new riches to all his players. And the Tour didn't have to give up anything. All the, all, the only cost was Jay Monahan's reputation and maybe his soul. And he did it willingly. And um, you could hail him for the most selfless leadership imaginable. But the problem was along the way, he, he, he you know, it's been documented, as you said, the he basically villainized the Saudis and he made their money dirty. Um, and he, he, he chose to go down that road. I mean, that was a tactic he chose. And so now when you partner with them and you take their money, what does that say about you? Um, and so he, there were, those were some of the missteps that he made. You know, he, he, he didn't have to make it a moral argument. He didn't have to draw the 9-11 families into the conversation, but he chose to. And that's where the hypocrisy rings out. Um, but from a strictly a, a business sense, um, you know, he, you could, you could argue he cut the greatest deal in golf history. He, he's, he's got, he's still technically the day to day CEO of this new co. And now he has this unlimited, unlimited amount of capital to do all kinds of cool stuff. So, um, but yeah, it, it, that's, that's the, 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 the tra- that's what part of makes, makes Monahan roll in this tragic. And one of the, some of the some of the fresh information in this book goes back to the early days of the Saudi threat, like you know how long Monahan knew about this was coming, and you know the number two guy for the Saudis was you know Majed Al Saror. 
he writes this letter to Monaghan, which I reproduce in the book, which no one's seen publicly. And this is, this is in April of 2021. So this is a full, more than a full year before live launches. And he says, we want to partner with you and we, we want to sit down and talk and find a way to, to come together and support the tour and, and have this fresh new product and have all this investment. And, Monahan's response, I mean, it's, it's all in the book is, you know, in this, in this board meeting, Charlie Hoffman says, why aren't we meeting with these Saudi guys? And Monahan says, we're at war, you know, we're at war, we're at war, we're at war. And that, that was, you, you can argue that the Saudis, it was a little coy on their part because they kind of said, we're going to launch with or without you. So it was, there was a certain threat that was baked into this letter, but they did come advocating for compromise and for partnership. And Monaghan, with this very militant approach, kind of poisoned the waters for the, all the professional golf. And he set the tone that would follow, that we are at war. And um, so he came around in the end, but there was a whole series of missteps that, that got him to this place where it was easy to tar him as a hypocrite, as a liar. Um, and and it became easy to diminish the fact that maybe he did the best thing possible for the tour. But it came a little too late and it came after a, a lot of a lot of name calling. Right. The, the, the PGA Tour board, it, uh, its main obligation is to support, of course, the membership numbers, about 150 a, a, active players. Do you think there's any chance that the group, the 150 or more players, will actually not want this to happen and therefore the board will be compelled to turn it down? It's a possibility, but if if the framework agreement falls apart, then it, we just resume business as usual, where Live Golf is is up and running and the PGA Tour is. Um, it will have been a success for the PGA Tour that they got the lawsuits dismissed with prejudice, so they can't be refiled. So the tour no longer has you know five to ten million dollars a month in legal fees. That's a that's a win for sure, um, but. Live Golf would go back to trying to recruit players. And now what player is going to turn down their money after Jay Monahan and Jimmy Dunn and everyone else said, we, we love these guys. They're our partners and they're good for golf. And if, the, if Jay Monahan was so eager to take the Saudi money, why would Patrick Cantlay or anyone else turn it down as they did the first time around? And so the, it's tenuous for the tour. I mean, they, they could lose an entire generation of players to live golf if, if they go back to being competitors. Now, the... Maybe maybe that doesn't matter, you know. If as a thought exercise, if Cantlay and Xander Shoffley and Matt Fitzpatrick and Will Zalatoris and Sam Burns, if all those guys went to live, does that change anything? I don't know. I mean, they're they're all nice players, but they don't really move the needle. It would make Live Golf a more compelling product, but is it going to send the masses to the CW? Maybe not. And as long as the tour has Rory and Rom and Spieth and Justin Thomas. Um, and a, the occasional Tiger Woods cameo, perhaps, and maybe Charlie Woods, then maybe the tour is still in a, a position of strength. But that's the risk for the tour is that uh, if if the membership votes is down, they lose access to all the Saudi capital. They go back to being competitors. They lose a lot of their top players. That That's a big risk. Now, I do think that there's, and I know this to be a fact, there's a strong faction within the tour and even within the board of the the players on the board like okay we've found religion a a not-for-profit pga tour makes no no sense we were in this outdated model let's take outside investment 
let's privatize, but let's just do it without the Saudis. And so the tour could still, they could still take all this private equity money and they could, they could just say no to the public investment fund and they would still be much better capitalized than they were. And they'd be able to pay their players what they promised them, these elevated purses. But uh, again, in that scenario, the tour is stronger financially, but they lose, they, they, they run the risk of losing a bunch of their players. And so I think the, the way to split the baby, you know, that, that legal term is that take the outside investment from, from private equity, American money, but keep the Saudis in the fold so they don't go back to being competitors. And I think that's the smartest and the best way forward for the tour, but it's complex because there's, there's a lot of egos, there's a lot of hurt feelings, um, and there's a lot of personalities in play. So, um, you know, Patrick Cantley is definitely working to try and he's got this end around going to try and subvert this deal and cut the Saudis out of it, but to see how the political capital, I mean, um, we're going to find out there's, there's now 12 votes on the board of directors, six players and six outside directors. So the, the fall lines there are interesting. Tiger's there, Rory's there. Then you have like the Peter Malnati's and the Webb Simpsons who, who are, um, they're not, they're not at the top of the game anymore. So they're kind of looking out for the journeyman. Um, they still need to fill the seat of Randall Stevenson, the, the AT&T CEO who resigned in protest. He's one of the independent directors. So how the board shakes out is, is a very interesting question. Is it a simple majority vote? Yes. What, what would they and do in the 6-6 six, six, six scenario? That's the nuclear option. I mean, nobody knows because they, they generally when things get voted on, it's almost always unanimous. They, they negotiate it out to a point. They get the players on board and they want the players to vote yes. Like there's been – and even like going back to 2021 when they, they the player impact program – James Hahn was very much against it, but he didn't, in the end, he didn't vote against it. He just abstained because the tour always wants to say it's unanimous. You know, it becomes mm-hmm. a, like a, ling- a linguistic thing. So I don't think there's any precedent for a deadlocked vote and I, how they finesse that, that would be spectacular theater. So even with something uh, th- this major that absolutely will affect the institution forever, it doesn't go to a, vo- a vote of the whole membership. It's still decided on the board level. Is that correct? That's correct. Whether whether the board could um, do a straw poll, you know, raise your hand in a meeting, like there's there's ways they can build consensus, um, but it's not a true democracy. I mean, it, it's like the it's it really they have like the electoral college is what it is, and so right. we all know that's a that can be a flawed institution. The the, the PGA Tour, the PGA America, the USGA have all run from Trump. Live Golf has not. Um, how would um, how would Trump courses play into the future uh, uh, with in a some kind of merger between the PGA Tour and Live? Yeah, I mean the Trump organization has a, a multi year contract with Live Golf, I and mean, that's they played twice at, at Trump events in the beta test season last year. They've got three Trump events this year. Um, you know, Trump. This is Trump's last foothold in the men's professional game, and he's not going to let it go easily. Um, and you know, ironically, Doral was a PG Tour event forever, so it has it has provenance. Like you, you could you could imagine possibly going back there, but certainly um, the PJ Tour has made its stance known. You know, they they took away the the event at Doral, and um, but money talks, and 
I don't think I don't. They're trying to stay out of lawsuits. Uh, it's possible they would they would give Trump one event as um, to help make all this go away. But he's certainly very, very polarizing. I mean, Live Golf needed Trump. You know, Sergio Garcia told me we we have to play where we're wanted, and not very many people wanted us, um, yeah. especially in, in the first year. So um, certainly the tour doesn't need Trump from a venue standpoint, but. Um, better for better and for worse, he is a part of live golf and he's been a big part. So that's another thing that has to get finessed and negotiated. And, and, um, that, that remains unknown. Mm -hmm. Well, well, as you start to wrap up here, let's talk about what the, your personal efforts to get this book up and out. Uh, you worked so hard on that Phil Mickelson book, uh, the aftermath of that Phil Mickelson book, people were coming at you every which way uh, imaginable. You have four children, you're working for the Fire Pit Collective, you're, you're one of its partners and, and working hard to get that off the ground and make that prof profitable. Um, usually there's a long hangover period after somebody finishes the book. Sometimes those hangover periods can last for the rest of the writer's life, uh, as was the case with uh, Harper Lee. Uh, uh, um, you know, one one yeah. book we never yeah. heard from her. Well. She did, evidently wrote a second yeah, book. J.D. Salinger. There's, there's definitely a precedent. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, how did you get the energy to go back at it right on the heels of the Phil book? <laughs> yeah, it was. I did. There was a little lull. I mean, I, I've told this story before, but so in in last June when when the U.S. Open was at the Country Cl Club in Brookline. I took the train down to New York City to have lunch with um, Joe Frari Adler, our mutual editor, Michael, and then uh, David Black, who's been my career-long literary agent. And I hadn't seen either one of them in, in a long time because of COVID and other reasons. And so uh, it was billed as just like a celebratory lunch because at that point, the the Mickelson book had been on the um, the New York Times bestseller list for like five weeks and, and all this and that. And so we had a great lunch and... Uh, Somewhat unbeknownst to me, Jofi and David had negotiated a contract for this live book. And and by the way, I was coming in hot from the first live London event where I got tossed out of the press conference and that became a whole story. I flew from there straight to Boston, took straight into New York. So, um, and it was a great offer. Went, didn't you go to the U.S. Open for a day and then maybe train or, down to New yeah, York? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I went down on that Wednesday. And so, um, there was a lot, there was a lot of energy in the air. Um, I couldn't really say no. I mean, it's, it was just already shaping up as like one of the biggest stories of our lifetime. I was already at the center of it because of the Mickelson book and what had just happened in London. And I was never not going to do it, but I really, and I started going to the live events, you know, right away. I was at Portland. I was at Chicago. Um, obviously I was in London and I was also double tracking. I was at the, the tour championship and some other PGA tour events. So I was, and I was talking to people and I was doing interviews and I was getting the lay of the land, but I didn't really start typing the book until, um, around Christmas. So there was a decompression period from just being in the chair, but then it was an insane mad dash to get it done in seven months. And I pretty With much the worked. Story changing constantly while you're writing it. Constantly. And, um, um, yeah, reporting it in real time and, and writing about it in real time for, for the fire pit. So, yeah, it definitely took a piece of my soul. Like I'm, I'm just starting to recover, um, sort of. But I, I pretty much worked on it seven days a week and till midnight almost every night. And um, 
my kids just got used to going to bed with, you know, me sitting in the chair and, you know, I'm at one point, my son, Ben, you know, he, he came, he sat in my lap and, and he's like, I'm sorry, you have to work so hard. I said, honestly, I love it. Like, it's fun. I'm having a great time. I wound up seeing a chiropractor and I was going to get massages because the physical toll was adding up, you know, just of just being sitting, just sitting there typing, but chasing the story and, and cracking the code and getting all the secrets. Um, it's very energizing and it went in all kinds of unexpected directions that I didn't expect in the writing. And so I actually loved it. It's fun to be that immersed in a project and thank God there was a firm deadline. I, I actually needed that. And there was a point where, where Simon Schuster said, okay, like, is it coming out this year or not? Like, because the way it works with book releases, they kind of have to reserve shelf space. They have to reserve printing presses. They have to buy the, the paper and the glue. Like this stuff has to get, get figured out months and months in advance. And so there was a point of no return when I had to say yes or no. And when I said yes, I actually felt great relief because then I knew, okay, I'm going to get this book done uh, one way or another. If we'd let it ride for another six or eight or 10 months, it would have just kept taking over my life. So I was actually happy to have that intense deadline pressure because it was motivating and it carried me along. But uh, it was it was ambitious. I'll say that. Now, a lot of male readers, especially of uh, sports-related books, especially uh, give the chance to read the book or wait for the TV version, excuse me, the film version. Uh, they're going to wait for the film version. Uh, what's your advice to the, to these people? What, do you think there'll be two different, you think this story will be told in multiple ways? Should they wait or should they, I have my own answer because I love reading. Uh, yeah. And I'm distrustful often <laughs> on the screen. Um, yeah. I mean, what's your advice to those people? Yeah, there's, there's been definitely been interest from Hollywood types about, about this story and, but who knows like that, that's a, that can be a long, complex, frustrating process. You, you never know. Um, I mean, Jeff Perlman's a friend and, and, and former colleague for both of us. And you know what, what they did with, uh, with his Lakers books in, um, in winning time. Yeah. I mean, it, that's so fun to watch. It's so stylized and it, it like the energy on, of that show is phenomenal. Like, um, but that's, that's rare. You just never know what you're going to get from a, a cinematic treatment. I mean, the book, the great thing about a book is you just have all the room you need to stretch your legs. And, you know, I became fascinated by the agent's role in the building of live because they were the ones doing the negotiating. And this was a once in a lifetime windfall for these agents. And so I went down this whole rabbit hole with Mark McCormick and Arnold Palmer and how the professions changed and all the different, the infighting between the agencies and Tiger's role in, uh, as it relates to Mark Steinberg and, and that management company. And, you know, I never imagined that I would go so deep on the agents, but I found it utterly fascinating. And, um, that's the kind of thing that might never, if there is some sort of cinematic treatment, will just never show up on the screen. So I would say the book has, it's so rich and it's so layered and it's so complex. I would vote for the book every time, but, um, but you know, that's, that's anyone who writes a book wants people to read the book. So, um, but I would say, however, people consume the story, I'm, I'm okay with it. I did, I did read the audio version. That was a great challenge. And that was a lot of fun as I did with the Phil one as well. And, um, did you do that so, at your home studio or did you have to go someplace for that? No, you have to, it's, it has to be professional grade. And uh -huh. while my little living room here works for these podcasts, this is a different yeah. level um, yeah. of, of care. And I mean, that was six days in the studio and, 
I'm wearing a headset and there's a producer who's, he's just at home actually, but he's reading along and, um, and then there's a studio engineer and both of them are weighing in constantly about if I mispronounced a word, if I should have given that certain sentence a little more energy, yep. um, if I'm reading too fast and I need to like, it's, it's a whole thing. And, um, but I did enjoy it. And, um, so yeah, there's, there's, any way you come to the story is fine with me, but uh, I, I do think that the book is um, stands on its own in, in a unique way. And it would be it would be amazing. It'd be it'd be super cool if there's a documentary made or there's even a scripted version of this. But um, I would vote for starting with the book. But you know, uh, I'm compromised. <laughs> uh, for those who are interested, I know you would be on if you haven't heard about it. Michael Lewis wrote a, a profile of Tom Wolf uh, that ran in Vanity Fair maybe four or five years ago. And I know I've sent the piece to you, Alan, to other friends. It's just an incredible piece of reporting about how a writer works. And that just got turned into a documentary that I would uh, really urge you to see. But, you know, but I, I, Christine, my wife and I just went and saw it the other day. And I, I was thinking about you when, uh, when watching it because, um, Wolf has a lot of the moves that, uh, that you have, uh, and that we would all aspire to have, but you really do have, which is, get so deep inside the subject that you can write about it uh, from the inside. So I'm going to wrap up with this, this last question, but now you're going to write about your own life as, as a, as a writer of nonfiction. And let's, let's look at a, maybe a third, let's look at a 30 year period cart boy at Pebble beach um, uh, gets on at sports illustrated at let's call it age 20. I've been a little, little, slightly later than that this summer, you and I went out for uh, dinner to celebrate your 50th birthday. Uh, so this really quite significant arc of a character, 30 year period <laughs> from an innocent who's hanging on every word that Jim Murray writes in the LA times uh, when you're at UCLA <laughs> to becoming a person that young writers are looking at to see, wow, this is how, this is how you do it. Uh, what's your own sense of your own journey uh, through these 30 years? Well, We'll wrap up on that. Yeah, well, it's it's a it's a fabulous question. I mean, um, yeah, turning fifty, it definitely that, that happened in May this year. And actually, I, I finished the manuscript of this book a few weeks later. So I, there's there's been a little reflective period, and I just I I just spoke at a at Carmel High School in their journalism class, and it is funny to be this this oracle of advice when I still feel like I'm 25 at heart, and. Um, uh, it's been it's been a wild ride. I mean, if you told twenty year old me this would be my ninth book, and mm. you know the SI cover stories and all the other things that, that have come my way, it's um, I would be very humbled and very um, you know definitely beyond my wildest dreams. Like, and Michael Lewis and Tom Wolfe are two of my heroes. Like, uh, it's funny you mentioned that. You know, when I read, read Sports Illustrated when I was like ten, eleven, twelve, that's when I first came in contact with the magazine. And I was playing every sport back then, but I was, it was the writing that, that, that captivated me. And when I started as an intern, I was, and funny, you mentioned Jim Murray. I was way more starstruck by Jim Murray than I was by Jack Nicholas. <laughs> you know, my, my here, even though I love sports and even though I've, I've coached basketball and I've played sports and all that, it's the writers are my gods. You know, they're the ones that I, that I aspire to be. And they're the ones that inspire me. And I have, you know, I have a, a bookcase in my, in my bedroom. It's like all my favorite books. And it's all the memoirs of all the old sports writers and it's all the anthologies, you know, it's, um, and every now and then I'll just, just grab one and plop on my bed. And just, even though I've probably already read it twice already, like, 
Um, so I'm not remotely suggesting that I'm in the, in the pantheon of a Jim Murray and a Michael Lewis and a, a Tom Wolf. You know, that's a different universe, but it, it's cool that we, you know, you and I both have made a life out of this and uh, it's not easy to do. I mean, the, the industry's changed so dramatically um, in, in our careers. Um, it's gratifying just to still be at it. You know, you just you never know what's around the bend. We both have had lots of, of colleagues who have gotten out of journalism because they just couldn't make it work. And um, yeah. so uh, it's like every time you get a, you put a book out into the world, it's like, man, you know, fooled them again. It's like, just, just keep this whole gig going because it's, it's not easy to do. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been a wild 30 years when, when you frame it like that. And I was 20 when, when it all started, when mm. I started my internship. So it's, um, yeah, it, it's humbling. And, you know, there's art and there's commerce, like we control the writing of the book and then the selling of the book and, and all that is way beyond the control of any one individual. So, I, I kind of separate the two and people will buy the book or they won't. Um, and I'm at peace with that because I gave it all I had. Like, I mean, I really did leave it all on the field, you know, this, mm-hmm. um, and that, that's all you can do. I think people will pick up on the energy of it and the the care that went into it. And um, I hope, I hope they love it and I hope they enjoy it, but I loved it and I enjoyed it. And I think, I think that's probably enough. That is beautifully said. Uh, thank you, Alan. And I'm going to turn it back over to you. <laughs> you should just you should just close this thing. End these things. You have a nobody I mean, does. You have a it's whole always, thing how to end it. But it's always awkward. Pleasure. But- I wish you a lot of luck with the book, and uh, it was a total pleasure to read. Uh, it's a weird kind of pleasure because it's not like to me as a you know very much a traditionalist. It's not a quote happy subject you know i see everything through the prism of greed basically in this fight in particular and, and often in, in modern life but it's deeply deeply uh in, instructive and way beyond and it goes way beyond golf as i tried to say in the beginning but so alan congratulations on uh on this year ninth book and uh and you, you say goodbye to the people <laughs> i will well and mike i appreciate you doing this i mean this is a long-standing tradition um I'm sure 20 years from now when um, we're both, you know, God knows where in, in the media universe, we'll still be, we'll still be doing these podcasts for somebody somewhere because it's one of the, one of the joys of, of, of writing books is talking about them with someone who, who cares. And uh, so thanks for doing this. This was another fire drill podcast. That was Michael Bamberg with so many insightful questions. This is Alan Shipnuck. Thank you for listening. And uh, that's the end. I bet big and I played to win Made a fortune when my ship came in I ran the table, never thought I could fall Then the winter time hit me like a cannonball And now I can't shake this losing streak Every road I take is a dead-end street I got thoughts in my head, can't get them out Trying not to think what I'm thinking about I got thoughts in my head, can't get them out Trying not to think what I'm thinking about This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust 
into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details.